You're listening to the Mission Church Podcast. Each message comes from our Sunday morning gatherings where we worship in community, study God's Word, and grow in our faith together to the glory of Jesus Christ. The Mission Church is committed to helping each person belong and believe and to equip them to embrace the call of God upon their life. We pray these messages will build your faith and encourage you today. If you need a Bible this morning, go ahead and raise your hand. We've got ushers who can hand those out to you, and it'll be much more enjoyable if you can follow along with us while reading the text. So whether it's your phones or whether it's your uh, paper Bibles, open them up to Matthew chapter 25 this morning. Matthew 25. If you're new to the Mission Church or it's been a while since you've been with us, we are going through a series called The Unexpected Messiah, looking at the Gospel of Matthew in its entirety, verse by verse. And here we are beginning chapter 25 tonight, almost toward the end of Matthew. And for the last four weeks, Pastor Dave has taken us through a series within a series called The Return of King Jesus. And really, we've been unpacking Matthew chapter 24, which is part of what is known as the Olivet Discourse. And the Olivet Discourse is simply this. Jesus is teaching his disciples on the Mount of Olives. And he's teaching them specifically from a question that they have asked of great importance. And if we were to go back to Matthew chapter 24 at the very beginning... The disciples had been showing Jesus the temple. They've been showing him these amazing buildings. And Jesus tells them, I assuredly I say to you, not one stone will remain on top of another. And he's pointing to the temple. He's pointing to Jerusalem. And this blows their minds that somehow this great and majestic building that represents the house of God will be reduced to rubble and to ruin. And they ask Jesus this question in verse 3. Chapter 24, they say, tell us, Jesus, when will these things be? When is this going to happen? And what will be the sign of your coming, your second coming, and the end of the age? What a great question from the disciples. How many of you want to know what the signs and when Christ is returning? (laughs) 17 of you. (laughs) First service had more, just saying. Uh, If you're new, we like participation. It's fun. So Jesus is answering this question. And in Matthew chapter 24, he walks them through a lot of important information about some of the signs of the times, but more specifically, encouraging the the disciples that God will remove his church before the tribulation begins. And for the last four weeks, we've looked at the rapture. And today, Jesus continues in this vein. And when we look at verse 42 and 44 of Matthew 24, Jesus says this, Watch therefore, for you do not know the day or the hour the Lord is coming. Therefore, you also be ready for the Son of Man, which is a a title for Jesus or the Messiah. For he is coming at an hour you do not expect. As we get into Matthew chapter 25 this morning, Jesus is going to teach along that same vein. Be watchful. Be ready. The Son of Man, Jesus, the Messiah, is going to come again at an hour and a day when we do not know. And yet, we can be ready. And what I love about this passage is Jesus is always building his disciples. Jesus is always building his disciples. Now, I want us to take a step back from this passage for just a moment, and I want you to think about the time period that this is occurring in. Matthew 
has 28 chapters in total. We're now in Matthew chapter 25. What is about to happen to Jesus? He's about to be crucified. He's going to be betrayed even by his own disciples who will run away. He's going to be lifted up by the Jewish leaders falsely and with heretical teaching about him. And they're going to betray him over to Pontius Pilate who will give the Jews the authority to crucify Jesus. Being fully God and fully man, Jesus knows exactly what's coming. And if you knew you were about to die in roughly four days, what might your life look like? But notice this, Jesus is always building his disciples. And I want to encourage you in something. It's easy for us to coach others when things are going really well. You hit that nice drive right off the tee and it goes down the middle. And the guys behind you are like, oh, good shot. You're like, yeah, well, I just uh, put my feet this way and I held my shaft this way. And, uh... But when you hit a major slice, is anyone asking you for advice? That totally rhymed. It's not even planned. No. But here's my encouragement. Jesus is always building his disciples because he keeps the main thing the main thing. He's preparing them for what is to come. He knows they're going to be devastated and confused and hurt and frustrated when he goes to the cross and is buried in the grave. And yet he's building into the structure. He's building his disciples to prepare them for what is to come, even at his own expense as he faces death. And my encouragement to you this morning is, even when you're in difficult seasons of life, don't think that God can't use you to minister to others. As a matter of fact, when we look at scripture as a whole, it tends to be when he uses us the most because we are at his weakest, our weakest point and Christ is most glorified in us when we suffer. Be builders of men, be builders of women, and don't allow your circumstances to determine when that is happening because Jesus is building you at all times also. And Jesus continues to teach his disciples. We're going to read through this passage. It's known as a parable. And here is what a parable is. If you're not sure or if you are new to the Bible, here's what a parable is. A parable is a common story revealing important spiritual truth. A parable is a common story revealing important spiritual truth. It's not a story that every single detail you got to break apart. And, oh, this means this and this means this. Jesus has one main point that he wants to reveal to us in this parable. And we'll see what it is. Chapter 25, beginning in verse 1. Then the kingdom of heaven shall be likened to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Now five of them were wise and five were foolish. Those who were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them. But the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. But while the bridegroom was delayed, they all slumbered and slept. And at midnight a cry was heard, Behold, the bridegroom is coming, go out and meet him. Then all those virgins arose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, No, lest there should not be enough for us and you. But go rather to those who sell and buy for yourselves. And while they went to buy, the bridegroom came. And those who were ready went in with him to the wedding. And the door was shut. 
Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered and said, Assuredly, I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, here's the thrust of the parable. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour in which the Son of Man is coming. In other words, be ready. Be ready. This parable is meant to hinge on verse 13. Be ready for the coming Messiah. Be ready for the return of Christ. This is the main point and the thing that we will keep at the forefront of our minds as we unpack this parable. Now, because Jesus is telling a common story to help communicate an important spiritual truth, this would have been widely understood 2,000 years ago in a Middle Eastern country. Because we're not 2,000 years ago in a Middle Eastern country, how many of you would like maybe a little more understanding of what's going on culturally? Wow, that's more than the 17. Yeah, we're getting there. This is All that matters is everyone raises their hand at the end of the sermon, right? We're good. Here's what's going on. Jesus says in verse 1, he says, Then the kingdom of heaven shall be likened, which means this. The kingdom of heaven is talking about the church. It's talking about Christ and the church. And Jesus is going to use a common story to create an illustration or a picture of the relationship between Christ and his people. What Jesus is doing and what his people should be doing. And he's going to communicate something very important. It says, The kingdom of heaven shall be likened to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Uh, these ten virgins are ten bridesmaids. So even if you picture a modern day wedding with all the wedding party lined up, bridesmaids on one side and groomsmen on the other, these are the bridesmaids. And there's really not a lot of emphasis to be put on the fact that they're called ten virgins, but there is an assumption made that because they're unmarried women, they're the bridesmaids of the bride. And the reason why there's 10 of them is not because there's some secret hidden meaning in the number, but just Jewish tradition would have that usually there were 10 bridesmaids in a Jewish wedding. And so again, Jesus is simply using a common story to communicate an important spiritual truth. And sometimes what ends up happening, myself included, when I get into study in these parables, is you can start to dissect every little thing and you're like, oh, does this mean this and this mean this? And here's what it's like. Have you ever walked out of your house or your apartment and there's a crow sitting on top of your car? <laughs> I get phone calls during the week. People are like, hey, Pastor JC. And I'm like, yeah, there's a crow sitting on my car. Should I get in it? And I'm like, yes, get in your car. Tell the bird to go away and get in. We laugh, but we are a superstitious culture. And if we are looking for signs in every little thing, we will find what we're looking for. That's not what this parable is doing. The whole purpose of the parable is found in verse 13. Be ready. Be watchful. The return of the king is coming. Will you be ready? So Jesus uses this common story and he's talking about, hey, there's a wedding party. And there are 10 bridesmaids or 10 virgins. And... The virgins, the bridesmaids, are to go out and meet the bridegroom when he comes. Well, a little understanding of what a Jewish wedding looks like might be helpful. There are three parts to a Jewish wedding. The first one is the engagement. And the engagement happens not really between the husband or the future husband and the future wife, but between who? 
between the parents, specifically the fathers, in which there would be an arranged marriage, and one family would get together with another family. They'd come to a table and sit down and talk about their children being married. This is the engagement period. The second part of the wedding process is known as the betrothal. And the betrothal would be an actual ceremony where vows are exchanged between the future husband and the future wife, but the marriage is not yet consummated, which means the man and the woman don't yet come together. This would be like our modern day engagement. Hey, I'm committing to be married to you at this time. And from there, the Jewish man would go back to his home and he would build or construct his own house for his family. And then roughly a year later, on an hour or possibly even a day, not specifically known, he would come for his bride. And there would be a, there would be a time frame in which the wedding party and the bride and her family would be waiting and ready, just like a, there's a, a lady at first service this morning. She's due this week. She knows that the baby is coming, but does she know the exact day or the hour? No, she doesn't. But is she ready? She told me five times she was ready this morning. <laughs> and Jesus is illustrating this point. You know that I'm coming back. You know this in your head. Now, how do we get this to your heart? How do you live like I'm coming? How do you live like I'm going to return? How are you anxiously, not in a bad way, how are you anxiously waiting, excited, looking forward to, longing for the day of Christ's return, because that's what we're called to as followers of Jesus Christ. And so this wedding ceremony that is being talked about that Jesus is illustrating is the third part of this marriage ceremony when the bridegroom would come for his bride and it was customary for the bridesmaids, or in this case, the virgins, to go out and meet the bridegroom and to usher him in to the wedding ceremony where they would celebrate and the marriage would be consummated. Jesus is who in this parable? He's the bridegroom, or we would call it just the groom. He's the bridegroom. And we know that because in Matthew chapter 9, he's having some discussion. And some Pharisees are upset with his disciples because they're not fasting and they're not keeping to the traditions of men. And Jesus responds this way in Matthew 9, 15. He says to them, can the friends of the bridegroom mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? Like, that doesn't make any sense. Why would you mourn for the bridegroom when he's right there with you? But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast. Jesus is referring to himself as the bridegroom. Who are the bridesmaids in this story? It's, it's us. It's the church. It's the body of Christ. Or I would say even it's the people sitting in the church. The question is, are all of them going to go out and meet the bridegroom? And Jesus begins to unpack this parable, verses 2 and 3. He says, now five of them were wise and five were foolish. Those who were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them. But the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. Jesus begins to create some disparity here. There's 10 virgins in total, 10 bridesmaids in total, five are wise and five are foolish. And he identifies who the wise are and who the foolish are. The wise are the ones who've brought what? Oil in their vessels, oil in their vessels. The foolish are the ones who what? Did not bring any oil for their vessels. And here is what we begin to see, that there are people in the church 
that are ready for the return of Christ, that are actively waiting, that are longing for, that are living their lives according to, I know Jesus is coming back, therefore I'm about my Father's will and not my own. And Jesus says these people are considered wise. But Jesus also identifies that, hey, there are some foolish people too who take their lamps, who give the appearance of being ready, who give the appearance that they're followers of Christ. And yet, what do they truly take with them? Nothing inside their lamps, no oil. And what we begin to see from this parable is the oil is representative of who? It's the Holy Spirit. We sang a song during worship that says, even when I don't see it, you're working. Even when I don't feel it, you're working. You know what that means? That means even when I don't see it, feel it, it's not about what I see, what I feel, what I do. You're the one going ahead of me and doing the work. It's your spirit that transforms hearts. It's not my righteousness or my actions. And Jesus is about to unpack that there is no readiness without having oil in your lamp. And that oil is the Spirit of God. And there's at least two things we need to cover right here of, well, how do we get oil in our lamps? How do we get oil in our lamps? The first one is through the saving work of Jesus Christ for salvation. When the Spirit comes into our life and becomes the seal and the guarantee that we will be spending eternity with Christ in heaven is that moment when we repent of our sins and we confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, right? Romans 10, 9 and 10 say, anyone who believes in their heart and confesses with their mouth will not be put to shame. They will be saved. That is the first way that oil is put into our lamps. But I also believe that Jesus wants us to understand something else. It's not just a one-time thing that happens. Do you think Jesus wants to put oil in our lamp every single day? You bet he does. He wants to fill our lamps every day. And the way that we get filled up on a daily basis is through relationship with Jesus. By reading his word, by spending time in prayer, by being connected to the body of Christ, being in community with others who point us back to Jesus. By not only knowing God's word, but applying God's word, not just on a Sunday morning, but throughout the week and throughout our workplace and throughout the neighborhoods that we live in. And so Jesus identifies, hey, there are five virgins, there are five bridesmaids, there are five representatives of people in the church, they're ready. They're wanting Jesus to come back and they're living out their faith. But then he unpacks that there are five foolish virgins or bridesmaids or people in the church that give the appearance of taking this lamp but there's no oil. Now, let's just think about this logically. Um, in Hebrew days, there were two different kinds of lamps, or one's a lamp, one's a torch. We're not really sure which one's being referred to here. But it would just be a, a clay lamp, and there'd be a little point here with a hole in it, and that's where the flame would be lit and the wick would come out. And then it would be poured in from this edge. And if you didn't have any oil, what couldn't you do? You couldn't light your lamp. 
mean, maybe if the wick was a little bit wet from the last time and you just hadn't refilled it, you could get a little bit of a flame, but it wouldn't last long. Or the torches would literally just be long sticks with pieces of cloth wrapped around the top. You would dip it in oil and light it, and then you would carry it around. And when it began to go out, you dip it in more oil. So oil is important. And we see that very peculiar... I'm not even going to try and do that one again. It's peculiar that five of these virgins... They take their lamps, but they don't take any oil. Um, I can remember uh, not too long ago, uh, I've got four kids. They all play rugby, and we're kind of all over the place with that. We are on our way to a rugby game in Valley Center. Everyone say Valley Center with me. Valley Center. We're halfway there, and one of my kids goes, Dad! And I'm like, yeah, bud. I forgot my cleats and my mouthpiece. You don't need anything else in rugby. Cleats and mouthpiece. There's no pads. There's no, you just need those two things. And I was like, okay, it's okay. No, that's not how I responded. I was like, what do you mean? You forgot your cleats and your mouthpiece. Why was I upset? Because he wasn't prepared. He wasn't prepared. He wasn't ready. And what do you think I said 5,000 times before we left the house? Get your cleats and your mouthpiece. Now we laugh about that. But here's the reality. Do you not think that our Heavenly Father, through His Son, Jesus Christ, has not repeatedly offered this over and over and over again, saying, please don't forget your cleats and your mouthpiece. Please don't leave without your oil. Please don't do anything without first having the Holy Spirit in your life through salvation. And then I want to fill that up daily. Don't leave the house. Don't leave the workplace. Don't leave your relationships without the oil, the Holy Spirit saturating your lives. And what ends up happening sometimes as we read these parables is we can see God as very black and white, just yes and no. And hey, some get in and some don't. But let me encourage you about something. It's in God's nature and his character that he desires for none to perish, but for all to come to repentance so that they can be saved. Exodus 34, 6 and 7. Moses is with God and the people of Israel, who, by the way, God just delivered out of slavery, who conquered the Egyptian army by wiping them out in the Red Sea. They're literally having orgies and worshiping a golden calf and they deserve death. And yet God's character is displayed when he says the Lord is patient, slow to wrath and anger and long suffering so that people can repent and come to him. Ezekiel 33:11. I wish for none to perish, but for all to repent of their sins. Why should you die? O house of Israel. It's in God's nature and his character. Does he want the five foolish virgins not bringing any oil? Of course not. Because that's not who he is. And yet there is a decision to be made. These bridesmaids, these virgins, they know very well how those lamps are lit and how they stay lit. And they choose willingly to not bring any oil with them. What does this represent? What is Jesus getting at? Fake Christianity creates Sunday-only Christians. Fake Christianity creates Sunday-only Christians. 
Listen, it's great that you're here on a Sunday morning. The corporate gathering is important. It's biblical. But don't think for one second that this gets you into heaven. Don't think you can earn God's favor by attending church. You are the church. This is a building, but you are the church. You're to live this out. And fake Christianity simply gives the appearance. Um, I don't live in this world, but some of the young adults in the young adults ministry do. And on dating apps and profiles, you can put all kinds of different information, including religious background or if you like to go to church. And does it mean a single thing? It just doesn't. Unless you live out what you're proclaiming, it's fake Christianity. Anybody can use words, but to have a transformed life produces fruit and evidence. And Jesus is warning against fake Christianity that creates Sunday-only Christians. Fake Christianity also creates powerless Christians. Powerless Christians. And here's what a powerless Christian looks like. A powerless Christian is someone who maybe has a wayward teen who's struggling with either anxiety or depression, and that parent just goes, well, you know, I'm just hoping for the best. Just, you know, trying to stay positive. That's a powerless Christian. Now, is it good to stay positive for your children? Yes, but if that's all, there's no power behind that. It's just a nice ideal or a thought. Here's what it looks to be a powerful Christian. Oh, I'm praying for my son and daughter and bringing them before the Lord. I'm ministering to them by the way that I get fed by the word, and then I'm applying that in my parenting. I notice that that phone or I notice that that friend is just leading them down a dark path. I'm not afraid to enact discipline because God has empowered me as a parent to choose what is right for my child for that time that I have them in my home. I'm empowered by God's spirit to put into action what God's word tells me to do with my son or my daughter. That's a powerful Christian, not a powerless Christian. But fake Christianity, it's powerless. It's whimsical hopes and dreams. It's trying harder, but having no power behind what's going on. Uh, this, you, maybe some of you have this in your home, but like the air fryer in our house is the new thing. We air fry everything. I don't even know what it does. It like makes the broccoli crispy or something. You can't use your air fryer if you don't have what? Power. Someone said broccoli. Yeah. <laughs> you can do all, all kinds of things, not just broccoli. What do you need for the air fryer to work? You need a power source. If you don't have a power source, it doesn't matter how fancy or expensive your equipment is. It doesn't matter how big it sits on your counter or how pretty it looks. If there's no power source to charge it and to get the job done, it's powerless. Fake Christianity creates powerless Christians. And then lastly, I believe one of the warnings that Jesus is giving us is that fake Christianity creates a false sense of security. These five foolish virgins, what do they have with them as they go in waiting for the bridegroom? They've got their lamps. They've got their lamps. They've got their wick. It sure looks like they've got everything on the outside. As a matter of fact, up to this point, other than Jesus telling us that some are wise and some are foolish, from the outside looking in, you cannot tell that there's a difference between these five foolish virgins and these five wise virgins. They look the same. 
it creates a false sense of security. If our faith is rooted in church attendance or tithing or I don't cuss, I don't smoke, I don't drink, um, I don't have sex outside of marriage, hey, those are all good things. But if they are the righteousness by which we are going to stand before God and see if we can get into heaven, Paul has a name for those things, for that kind of righteousness. What is it? It's filthy rags. It just doesn't stand. And the beauty of what Jesus is teaching is, hey, I don't want you to have a false sense of security. I want you to have full security. That's what the Holy Spirit is. Look at Ephesians. Notes are out of order here. Give me a second. We're going to jump ahead, uh, media team. It's a little bit further down. This is Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13. If you're at Ephesians 1, 13, say amen. Amen. It says this, In him, meaning Jesus, you also trusted. After you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom, having believed, you were sealed with what? The Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the day of redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. Fake Christianity creates a false sense of security, which relies on what we do. Genuine Christianity, to be a true follower of Christ gives us the assurance of eternal security through what the Holy Spirit does. That is the difference, and that's what God desires to do in our lives between both salvation and then the daily refilling of that oil in our lamps. Now Jesus continues, and he says this in verse 5. But while the bridegroom was delayed, they all slumbered and slept. And at midnight, a cry was heard, Behold, the bridegroom is coming. Go out to meet him. Then all those virgins arose and trimmed their lamps. When we think of this fake Christianity, there's a passage from Colossians chapter 2 that says this. It's on your screens. Therefore, if you died with Christ from the basic principles of the world, the basic principles of the world is this. You have to earn and deserve everything you get. Now, there's a half-truth to that. If you don't work, you don't eat. Except in our society. <laughs> right? Therefore, if you died with Christ from the basic principles of the world, why, as though living in the world, do you subject yourselves to regulations? Don't touch, don't taste, don't handle, which all concern things which perish with the using, according to the commandments and doctrines of men. In other words, it's this, of, hey, why are you putting your trust in your own righteousness? Why are you trying to earn God's love? Why are you trying to build a foundation on your success or your bank account or the way you look or all the other things that the world tries to get us to buy into? Why are you pursuing those things? Verse 23 says, these things indeed have an appearance of what? It gives the appearance of wisdom in self-imposed religion. 
false humility and neglect of the body, but are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. Um, I'm not picking on vegans, but I'm going to use this as an example. It would be like a vegan person saying, because I'm vegan and because of my self-discipline, therefore I am saved and God will accept me. Does veganism get us into the kingdom? No. Does being amazing at sports get us into the kingdom? No. Does even being a nice, kind, gentle person get us into the kingdom? No, it doesn't. None of these things are the oil that needs to be in the lamp of those virgins. None of these things have the power of the Holy Spirit. And so we begin to get a better understanding of the difference between these wise and foolish virgins. This word wisdom is important in this parable. James chapter 3 talks about this. And here's what James says about wisdom and what it truly is. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show by good conduct that his works are done in the meekness or gentleness or humility of wisdom. But if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, do not boast and lie against the truth. This wisdom, which really is that false wisdom, that fake Christianity, does not descend from above, but it is earthly, sensual, and demonic. For where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. So interesting that James says that confusion and every evil thing is there. You know what I think this means? That people who think they're wise based on their own doings are deceived into thinking they are part of God's kingdom. They're confused. And how evil is it when the darkness in us we think is the light? That false security, that fake Christianity, this is not wisdom at all. Instead, it is feeding the flesh. And what it tells us is these five virgins in the story, these five bridesmaids, these people sitting in the church, it's not that they just forgot their oil, like, oh, shoot, I forgot my mouthpiece and my cleats. That was an accident. It was an accident. But they intentionally went, I know I need to have oil in my lamp and I'm going to willfully choose not to bring it. I'm going to do it my own way. I'll do it at another time. I'll figure it out later. And this is what Jesus is warning us against, right? He says, therefore be watchful for you do not know the day or the hour when the son of man will return. Don't think that you can fill your lamp with oil at a later date or that it won't be needed when the time comes to meet the bridegroom. Now, verse 5 tells us that the bridegroom was delayed. And while they were delayed, what happened to all the virgins, both foolish and wise? They all fell asleep. Now, here's a, here's a tempting spot to start reading into this of like, who? what does this mean? They all fell asleep. What happens at late at night? You go to sleep, right? You go to sleep. That's all. Jesus is just taking a common story to communicate a certain spiritual truth, an important spiritual truth. They fell asleep because they're human beings and they got tired. But then the call or the cry comes at midnight and it's said at midnight because it affirms what Jesus has already taught in Matthew 24, 42 and 44. You don't know the day or the hour when the thief or when Jesus like a thief in the night will come. You don't know. So at midnight, this cry comes out, behold, the bridegroom is coming. Go out to meet him. Then all those virgins arose and trimmed their lamps. Here's the question. 
Are you ready? Because Jesus will return. Are you ready? Because Jesus will return. This is a great question just to do self-inventory on between you and the Lord. Are you ready? Is your lamp filled with oil? First and foremost, are you saved through Jesus Christ and sealed with the Spirit? Secondly, on a regular basis, on a daily basis, is your lamp being filled up with oil? Are you taking time to be in the Word, to build community around you with others in Christ, to spend time in prayer, to put into action what God's speaking to you through His Scriptures? And we begin to see that even though in verse 7 it says all of them arose, and what did all of them do? They trimmed their lamps, which simply means this. They took their wicks and they cut them probably in a triangle because that's the best way to get the least amount of smoke and the brightest light out of your lamp or your torch. They all did it. They all gave the appearance. They all went to church on Sunday. And then comes verse 8. And the foolish said to the wise, give us some of your oil for our lamps are now going out. Now we begin to see the disparity take place. There is a realization on these five foolish virgins part in which they recognize, oh no, we don't have what we need. We don't have what we need. And it's a a bit of a sorrowful state here. What do those five foolish virgins do? They ask the five wise virgins for what? They ask for some of their oil. Now, no different than a tiger can't give his stripes to a hippo. And no different than a parent can't impart their relationship with Jesus onto their child. These virgins cannot share their oil with the foolish ones. Think about this as a parent or from a grandparent standpoint. How many of us want to see our kids walk with Jesus and be saved by his grace? Absolutely. And we should be praying for that consistently. But no matter how bad we want that, we will not be able to stand before the Lord with our child and say, yeah, but, but I was saved. And, and no, our, child, our children will stand before God on their own just as we will stand before God on their own. And what seals us? What is the guarantee of our inheritance? It's the Holy Spirit. We are called to share the good news of Jesus. No question about that. We are to be a light in a city on a hill. But we cannot save people by giving them what's been gifted to us. We can tell them about the good news, but we cannot hand it to them and cover them. That is only by the blood of Christ. And for these five foolish virgins, it's evident that they don't have what they need the most because they chose not to bring it. The foolish are asking the wise for something that they can't give give away. And so we see the response of the wise. Verse 9, it says, The wise answered, saying, No, lest there should not be enough for us and you, but go rather to those who sell and buy for yourselves. Again, remember, this is just a common story. We're not going to unpack every little tiny detail of this and try and assign it meaning. It simply means this. The wise knew they couldn't give up what they had, 
because it wasn't something they were able to share. And in the story, it's simply, hey, that wouldn't make any sense because there wouldn't be enough oil for you and us and no one would be able to go out and meet the bridegroom. And so within the story, it's like, hey, you got to go get your own. Now, this isn't saying like you can somehow buy your salvation for the story's purpose that Jesus is trying to communicate is it's too late. Where are you going to get oil at midnight? You don't even have time to go there and back and then meet the bridegroom because he's already here. And look at verse 11. Excuse me, verse 10. And while they went to buy, the bridegroom came and those who were ready went in with him to the wedding and the door was shut. Um, At this point in the parable... There should be some sorrow for us. Uh, You don't need to raise your hands for this one, but how many of you can think of family or friends or people in your workplace that are without that oil in their lamp? It should break our hearts. That should cause us to think deeply about the sense of urgency that we should have in order to minister to others. And there's no question that in verse 10, there is a sorrowful thing when that door is shut. And here's what I want us to know about God's character. He takes no pleasure in shutting that door. How many of you remember the story of Noah and the ark? Go back to Genesis 8, 9, and um, God tells Noah, hey, because of the wickedness of man, because of the violence um, and just the evil thinking that has pervased within this within this mankind, I'm going to wipe everyone out except you and your family because you alone are righteous. And what made Noah righteous? It was his righteousness, God's righteousness, not Noah's. It was God's righteousness because he had faith, right? Uh, If we were looking forward into the New Testament, it was the spirit that had sealed Noah and those who were with him. And so God says, hey, I want you to build an ark. And this ark didn't, you know, happen in a month. How long did it take? 120 years. Some of you, some, some of you are like, gosh, I got this work project right now. And you're like, no, you don't. <laughs> no, Noah's like, no, you're fine. 120 years and no one had ever seen rain before. So, and yet here's what I imagine about God. And this is not explicit in the text, but I do believe it's implied. What was Noah's job other than building the ark? He was a preacher. What do you think he did for 120 years? Oh, he shared and shared and shared and asked people to repent of their sins and to come to God. And for 120 years, his message was not heeded. People did not put oil in their lamps. And when it came that day that the animals and all the supplies were in the ark, God calls to Noah, his wife, his three sons and their wives and says, come on in. And then he shuts the door himself but I don't think he shut the door with like, yeah, that's right. This is what you all deserve. Glad to see it. Can you imagine how heavy hearted and heavy handed that must have been for God to shut that door? And do you not think that when the rains began began to pour and the flood waters began to rise, do you think people surrounded that ark? What do you think they were doing? I can only imagine pounding on the doors, clamoring, probably crying out for Noah when they should have been crying out for God. Still looking for the ways of men to save them 
when it was only the path of God that would rescue them. And it's the same in this parable. God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but the door will be shut because just as he is loving and merciful, he is just and his wrath will endure against sin. That's why Christ came to pay the penalty for our sins so we don't have to bear that. But for those who choose not to receive Jesus as their Lord and Savior, to not take the oil in their lamps, there is no other way but that wrath to be poured on them. That question, are you ready? How do we recognize if we're ready for Jesus? How do we identify like, yes, the spirit of God is in me and working through me and this is, this is my life. This is my pursuit is Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit transforms our hearts. The Holy Spirit transforms our hearts. Don't miss this. The ways of man, the rules and regulations of religion says you have to do and then fill in the blank. The ways of God go, no, you were my enemy and I sent my son. I died for you while you were still a sinner. You love me. You respond to me because I first loved you. It's God initiating and us responding. This doesn't have to do with us initiating anything. It doesn't have us to do with trying to clean ourselves up to get better. It has everything to do with God goes ahead of us and he begins to transform our heart to where our heart can simply go, oh, what a wretched sinner I am. God, I recognize what you have done. Thank you. That doesn't involve any cleaning up of our lives. That doesn't involve any death of addiction. That doesn't involve any change of lifestyle. That's a transformation of our heart that happens at that moment of salvation to where we go, I see what you've done because you've given me the eyes and the ears and the mind to understand. The Holy Spirit transforms our passions. Um, I used to be passionate about football. When I say I was passionate about football, most of you are like, yeah, me too. No, I used to sleep with the helmet on and a football tucked under my arm. You laugh. My parents are here. They'll tell you. It was such a passion. I was so in love with it that I still remember Christmas Day, my mom and dad having to get me out of the weight room and be like, we're opening gifts now with our family. Let's go. It became my identity. It became everything of who I was, my performance, my success, my hard work, everything hinged off of those Friday nights and then Saturday days when I was in college. That was my passion. But when God begins to transform our hearts, he also begins to transform our passions. You know what I'm passionate about now? I look at our young adults here at the church. They blow my mind. They touch my heart. Last night, my wife and I went on a date. Imagine this. We ended up at Handel's Ice Cream. <laughs> That's another passion God's trying to root out of me right now. <clears throat> and as we're, as we're approaching Handel's, there's like young, nine of our young adult guys all together in line because one of the guys is uh, being stationed at the Pentagon and this is his last week. And these brothers are coming around him just uh, to pour into him and to love on him. And God's changed my passion from something that used to be about me 
and my success and my trophies, whatever it was. And now I have a passion to see others transformed in Christ and transforming the lives of people in Christ. I'm passionate about watching my kids and the time that I get to spend with them so that the character of Christ can be developed in them. That's not what my passion used to be. My passion used to be how can I chill out after work is done because I'm just fried from that and I want to do something for myself. This is what happens when God gets a hold of our hearts. He also begins to transform our passions. What are you passionate about? What drives you? What gives you joy? What, what do you long for? The Holy Spirit also transforms our character. When he's gotten to our hearts, when he's beginning to work on those passions, he begins to transform our character. And here's what that means. We start to see the fruit of the Spirit in our life. But here's what I love about that. At the moment of salvation, do we automatically become this person that stops swearing or lusting or smoking whatever it is we're smoking? or Like, does that happen at the moment of salvation? No, it really doesn't. That character transformation takes a lifetime. God is patient and enduring and long-suffering with us. And here's what I love about the picture that Jesus is giving. When the Holy Spirit comes into our life, he both transforms our life in a moment and then also daily over time. His finishing work is not complete until he returns. And that character, we begin to see the fruit of the Spirit, that love for others and for God. Joy and peace, patience in difficult circumstances. Gentleness, kindness, goodness, self-control. And people begin to see the fruit of what is happening because our lamp is full of the oil that we need. The Holy Spirit transforms our hearts, our passions, and our character. Romans chapter 8, verses 5 through 11. It's a bit of a lengthy passage, 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 but worth a read. The Apostle Paul says this, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on, imagine this, the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. In other words, when you're filled with the Spirit of God, what is it that you long for? The same thing that the Spirit longs for. We begin to see our hearts, our minds, our bodies, our lives aligned with God. For to be carnally minded is death. But to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Keep going. Because the carnal mind is enmity or is at war against God. For it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. So then those who are in the flesh cannot, what? Listen, we can't please God when we're doing things in our own strength. Even with the best of intentions. Even with trying our hardest, with white knuckling it, with saying, no, no I'm, not, I'm never going to do that again. I'm, this time I'm going to do it. We can't please God. Our efforts are meaningless. But here's the good news. But you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he is not his. 
And if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. We talk a lot about tension in our life. The tension of you can be both joyful and depressed. That can exist at the same time in your life. You can be both excited and fearful. Those can exist at the same time in your life. We have a body that is dead. It cannot inherit eternity. It must die because it is corrupted. And yet we also have the spirit of God living in us that is incorruptible. That is the seal and the guarantee of our eternity with Jesus. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, meaning God lives inside of you, he who is raised from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. This is the good news of why we need oil in our lamps. This is the good news of why the Holy Spirit is the seal and the guarantee of our salvation. And the way that we know we're ready is that readiness comes through a relationship with Jesus. Readiness comes with a relationship or through a relationship with Jesus. You can be legally married, but if you don't have a relationship with your spouse, you have a dead marriage. We can call ourselves Christians. We can say we believe in God, but if we don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ, it's just fake Christianity. Now, here's something that I've been wrestling with a lot just in working with our young adults and working with people in the church and working with people outside of the church on our streets here. So many people I hear say, oh, oh I believe in God. And James would say, well, so do the demons. But faith without works is dead. And here's what I think happens, especially in American Christianity. Listen, there's a lot of people who believe in God. Yeah, I believe that God made things. I believe there is a God. I even believe in God. But listen, if you don't have a relationship with Jesus, you don't have anything. Because without a relationship, there is no spirit to impart. Look at how Jesus ministered to his disciples. What did he do with them? How did he build them up? Through what? It's through relationship. That's where he spent his time. And it's the same on our end. We're not called just to simply believe. And by believe, we could break that down. Romans 10, 9 and 10, we've already referenced it. But believing means, hey, I don't just believe there is a God. I believe, which means... I have asked for his lordship to rule in my life. And I'm seeking a pursuit of who he is. And his spirit is guiding me in every aspect of my life. Or working in the different aspects of my life. Readiness comes through relationship with Jesus. When we think of that terrible day when God shut the door of the ark. Who had relationship with God? You think as the ark door was shut and the rain started to fall, people believed in God? Probably. But they had no relationship. And they didn't get in. The door was shut. And when we look at this parable that Jesus is showing to us, verse 10, And while they went to buy, meaning those foolish virgins that didn't have the Holy Spirit... 
The bridegroom came in a moment, and here's the rejoicing part. Those who were ready went in with him to the wedding, and the door was shut. There's this tendency in which there is the sorrowful part of this of many people will choose not to put oil on their lamps, will not receive the Holy Spirit, and therefore they'll be shut out. But don't miss this, Christian. We should rejoice that we're let in. And here's the best news of all. As you sit here today, what is the good news? The door is still open. The door is still open. We may not be able to impart our relationship with Jesus onto other people, but we can certainly invite them in. Those silly little pogs that we gave you in your bulletin, those circles that will end up all over the floor that we'll pick up afterwards. It may seem small and trivial, but listen, when you do this, it's representative of what God has been doing to the people of this earth since the world began. I'm inviting you. The door is open. I'm inviting you. The door is open. I'm inviting you. The door is open. I want you to come in. And it's not just to some like seminar. It's to a wedding ceremony, a joyous celebration that will last for eternity. We should be excited. Those five virgins that were ready, did they know they were ready? This is not a trick question. <laughs> Dave and I pull this on you way too much, apparently. They're like, <laughs> Do they know they're ready? Yes. They do know they're ready, and it causes them joy. They can't wait for the bridegroom. They've got their lamps, they've got their oil, and they're just like, okay. And they go to sleep for a little bit, but they go to sleep with joy, knowing that they're ready. And once that call comes, even as they're waking up out of their slumber, they're like, I'm ready. And they go to meet Jesus, and he brings them into his kingdom. This is how it should be for followers of Christ. Not in fear of his coming, not in trepidation of, oh, that scary day. No, but longing and looking forward to it. Because this will have an impact on people who are not following Jesus. Ooh, the apocalypse. Oh, you went through the book of Revelation? Verse by verse. Yeah, and it's amazing. Because it speaks of the thing that we should long for the most, the return of the king. Where's your heart? Where's your passions? What's being produced in your character? Where's your relationship with Jesus? Verse 11, we'll finish Verse 11 through 13. Afterward, the other virgins came also saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered and said, assuredly, I say to you, I do not know you. There's the relational aspect. This is almost verbatim what comes from Matthew chapter 7. When people say, hey, we prophesied in your name. We cast out demons in your name. We did all these good works in your name. And Jesus says, assuredly, I say to you, depart from me, you wicked servants, for I do not no, you. There was no relationship between us. But he answered and said, Assuredly, I say to you, I do not know you. Here's the crux. Here's the hinge. Here's the point, the main thing. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour in which the Son of Man is coming. Listen, the wedding celebration, the invitation is still out. The door is still open. If you are here today and you go, Hey, my heart is not transformed. My passions are not geared toward Christ or anything about him. And my character, even if it's good, is just a false sense of security. I have good news for you. The door is open. And that's representative of God's arms saying, come on, 
Come have relationship with me. That's available to you. I'll end with this passage from Isaiah, the same one we began with. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. The rebuke of his people will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. And it will be said in that day, behold, this is our God. We have what? We have waited for him and he will. He will. Come on, church. He will. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. We will be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you so much for your word and how you're willing to meet us right where we are in order to lead us to where we need to be. You start with these common stories. You get on our level that the king of kings, the creator of the universe would come to our level, would stoop that low to start building relationship with us so that we can enter into that open door of the kingdom of heaven. What a gift we have been given. Lord, I pray that for those in here that are followers of Jesus Christ, that are sealed by your spirit, would you give them even new and fresh hope, knowing that your return is where we set our eyes. Would you convict us in the areas in which our passions and our character still need to be chipped away at and sculpted and to be made more like you? Lord, you're doing a mighty work in us. These vessels of clay carrying just a marvelous light. What a high calling we've been given. And if you're here today and you recognize, listen, I don't have a transformed heart. I've not said yes to the Lordship of Jesus Christ in my life. But God has initiated that love and you want to respond today. With heads bowed and eyes closed, I just want you to to look up at me. Thank you. Blessings. Thank you. Lord, it's the power of your spirit that calls to us, that gives us eyes to see and ears to hear. And Lord, just like that wedding feast on that great day that is coming, there's reason for celebration today for more are coming too. God, you deserve all glory and honor And it is by your grace that we get saved. So Lord, let us be filled with the oil of your spirit. Not just once for salvation, but also on a daily basis. So that we may display our great and mighty Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you. And may our thanksgiving be done in song. May we rejoice with the sound of our voices singing to a holy God who has opened his door 
for eternity. In Jesus' name, amen. You may freely share this message with others as long as you don't charge for it. Support for these broadcasts comes from your generous donations that allow us to give away our materials for free. To participate with us, please visit our website at themissionchurch.net. God bless.